0: Today's episode is brought to you by the athleisure brand Sweaty Betty. Their five-star rated, bum-sculpting power leggings are made to perform for every sport and are crafted to wick away moisture even during the sweatiest of workouts. The high-waist and super stretchy material holds everything in place and supports you through your whole workout. With so many colors and prints, you'll want to wear these from studio to street. Right now, you can try your first pair of power leggings for 20% off when you go to SweatyBetty.com and use the code GLOSSY. Once again, that's SweatyBetty.com using the code GLOSSY. Barneys doesn't guarantee success, Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to The Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host, Taylor Milanese, and on today's episode, MZ Wallace co-founder Lucy Wallace Eustace discussed building her brand with a direct model in the 1990s, how product and brand complement each other, and leading a female-founded business with no outside capital or board members. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks
1: for coming on, Lucy. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. So let's start. When did, when did MZ Wallace get off the ground, and can you just describe who your customer was when he first Uh, you know, launched the business. And where did you see the brand fitting into that, like, broader luxury landscape at the time?
1: Okay, so we began the company about 20 years ago. We opened with a store. So we were DTC from, you know, from the get go.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And we, you know, Monica and I felt that there was a gap in the marketplace. We would both were both born and bred New Yorkers. I started working in fashion when I was about 14, so we'd worn a lot of different hats. Um, <clears throat> and we thought if we think there's a gap, someone else might as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and there wasn't really, it was sort of the height of Logomania, and there were lots of really beautiful heavy leather bags. And we, we thought, where is the where is the American company that is making lightweight, functional, chic nylon bags? Mm-hmm. There isn't one. There's Longchamp, there's Prada,
0: but there isn't a, an American company. We thought, okay, you know, let's give it a go. So, how did you get started in terms of building it on the back end? Like, where who did you partner with? Um, you know, I think it's, it's interesting to hear, like, you mentioned, you know, this American luxury brand. Like, how did you sort of build that from a partner perspective?
1: Well, we didn't really partner with anybody. We, we kind of went alone. We were sort of salmon upstream because a lot of, you know, people would chime in with advice and say, oh... That doesn't exist. That's that's a terrible idea mm-hmm. because it doesn't exist. Or you know, some people said that's a great idea because it doesn't exist. Um, we were fortunate because I have an editorial background. That when we opened the store, we got a lot of editorial support.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that kind of you know gave us a little kick. Um, but you know, slow and steady. It was you know we were very small when we started, and we just kind of have grown it really organically, brick by brick.
0: Mm-hmm. How big is the company now?
1: We have probably about 55 employees. We have two stores. We have an e-commerce website. We're in all Bloomingdale's, A.D. Nordstrom, Saks, Specialty, net a So we're, you know, we've got sort of a three-legged stool. Right. And good specialty stores as well. So, we, you know, it's sort of direct wholesale, wholesale department stores, wholesale specialty. Right, So, so one
0: thing that's interesting is you mentioned you were DTC from the get-go, and we've obviously seen a lot of brands capitalize on this oh we're selling direct we're cutting out the middleman that's our that's our value proposition that's our pitch to customers and so what how, as you've been watching those brands get off the ground you know, obviously in, they're in, in t- a ton of categories but particularly in the fashion space how have you rethought the way that mz Wallace is positioned to say like oh you know we, we kind of started this way it's almost like you, how did you sort of talk to this customer whose attention span is shifting towards this direct uh brand movement
1: well you know one of the reasons that it was really important to us to open the company with a store is from the beginning, we were determined to have a really direct conversation with our customers. And in the beginning, it was literally me and Monica in the store. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the reason for that was, you know, I think with some of the, the, the wholesale stores, the conversation can get lost and the inf- information that is coming from the salespeople doesn't get upstairs. Mm -hmm. And having been a salesperson, I'd experienced that myself of, you know, sending messages and it not really being heard. So we wanted to, you know, create an atmosphere where women could speak for themselves directly to us.
0: So, you know, this is the late late 90s. The the traditional path for a brand, especially on the, you know, more luxury, contemporary luxury side, was to get in those uh, department store doors first. And so, yeah, how did you even get the awareness of the customer without that initial launch pad?
1: You know, we have a very loyal, involved customer. And we have a strong repeat customer. So there was a lot of word of mouth Mm -hmm. and people coming back and buying another bag and and sort of, you know, our customers became our own brand ambassadors. So it slowly spread that way. And we probably started Wholesale, which helped as well, five years after. Mm But we were kind of mindful that we wanted to build the company and build its operating costs not dependent on wholesale, really yeah, dependent on our own. And then the other thing is we started e comm in 2004,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which for fashion was really early because fashion kind of arrived late to the party, mm-hmm. and so that allowed us to really build up um, a pretty significant business and presence. Um, and spread the word that way
0: yeah when you launched in the wholesale doors a little bit after the business had started how how do you think that your positioning to those buyers to those in those conversations was different than how you initially launched that way like what did you know about your customer how did, what did you learn about you know the product fit and, and things that probably helped sell the brand uh, rather than it just kind of being a blank slate
1: yeah that was incredibly helpful because we were able to I mean, we still do this. It's always a time constraint, but we really try to test product before mm-hmm. we we put it out there. So we'll test it on ourselves first, and then we test it in the stores. So our stores, you know, always served as a little bit of a laboratory. Mm. So when we go to those wholesale market appointments, you know, that enables us to say, you know, give this a try. We've tried it. It sold. It sold really well. Mm. Don't buy a
0: lot, but just give it a toe dip and then see how we go. Were they used to that type of feedback from like the brand side, or were they kind of like, we know what we're doing?
1: <laughs> a bit of both. I mean, there was also like why would anybody pay $225 for a nylon handbag? Mm. So there was a bit of that. How do, how do you
0: sort of fit that product with the price point then?
1: You know, when we began and we when we first started, we were manufacturing here in New York. And we would go to the factories and, you know, this is a term that is very much around, but then it really wasn't this sort of high-low pairing. So we'd go and we'd say, okay, this is our body material and this is our leather. And they would look at us like we were out of our minds Mm -hmm. because they would say, this is Italian leather that you're cutting into small pieces. You can use really cheap leather and make much more money and no one will know the difference. Mm. And we were like, but we'll know the difference. And so we really stuck to our guns with this high-low pairing. And, you know, in in educating the department stores about that and specialty stores, they began to kind of come round. You know, I think the other thing that, was, that differentiated us is we don't really go on sale very much. So there's only probably about 10 percent of the collection ever goes on sale. So the department stores love that because you're delivering a margin mm-hmm. and the, sta- the sales remain constant. Um,
0: so once you kind of get them on board, you know, you start slowly and then it builds. Right. How do you control the brand positioning as well as the price in those uh, department store partners? Because, you know, a lot of times you're just kind of shoveled into wherever the department store is going with its own promotions. And obviously, I think over the past 20 years, we've kind of seen the ramifications of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, we were we were tough. We were tough because they Mm -hmm. were like, this is how we work. We totally understand if you don't want to work with us
0: and just we're going to sit out if there's a sale. We're
1: not, you know, we're not in friends and family, we're not in sales, you know, we're not marked down, you know, but but the positive is if I buy this for $5 today, it's not going to be 250 tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I think the customers ultimately really really appreciate that and I think today's customers are savvier and better shoppers than they've ever been.
0: Right. It sounds like you're you're speaking to a lot of things that are really you you know modern ways of shopping that you know brand brand story heavy that high-low uh, positioning where you know people want really good quality leather in some cases but they also are on the go they need a more lightweight bag uh, for for other times and that that direct side and, and using customer feedback in the product so with all of that in mind kind of serving as the foundation of the business what what have you had to evolve as customers have changed over the past twenty years.
1: Oh, gosh. We've had to evolve with changing pocket sizes and just addressing tech in general.
0: Oh, so like pocket sizes as in getting bigger?
1: Yeah, bigger, smaller, iPads, all of it, laptops. Um, so that's been a huge thing because mm. when we started, most people weren't carrying laptops. And now the proportion of people that are always carrying laptops has really changed and right. also the size of their laptops. So, you know, there's a lot of needs to address. Um, so that that was one major thing. Yeah. And, you know, The thing about the stores is they afford us an opportunity to have a type of conversation with the customers that you can't have online. Not to negate the importance of the online information gathering that you can get, but if I'm a person buying a bag and I'm leaning against the counter and you're the sales associate, we're going to have a different kind of conversation. And I might tell you how I'm feeling Mm -hmm. and what else I looked at that day. But I won't tell you that online, necessarily. So right. you get all this antidotal information that is extremely valuable, mm-hmm. that really
0: you know, can inform design and direction. Right, and, and you mentioned you use your stores as a type of laboratory. How, how does that work? Because I imagine you need, you know, the, the store still needs to feel full in terms of uh, the inventory and the selection. So where do you kind of fit in that, that product test?
1: You know, with a couple hundred units. And you just put it out there, and then people love an exclusive. So mm-hmm. if if, you, if we say we're testing this, people are, you know, our customers are all in. They're super excited. I mean, if we would ever put that out, we kind of always do it quietly. Um, but you know, if we do an exclusive online, it goes pretty quickly if it's a new product. And we would we've never said it's a test product, but if we would say that, it would go even faster.
0: Mm-hmm. And have you branched out outside of bags, or you know, what's that? Uh, you know, broader brand um, vision in terms of of the product uh, look like? And and how do you see other, you know, categories potentially fitting in?
1: You know, I think we've broadened our offerings. We're not interested right now in in going to other classifications. Mm -hmm. We just want to get better at what we're doing and do that, you know, as best, you know, the best. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, for instance, we now have travel sleeves on many, many bags. And that is coming out of direct customer feedback that, we put it on, and people went bananas. And so we're like, okay, we're going to put it on as many bags as we can because the way that our travel sleeve is constructed, it's almost invisible. So when it's closed, it's just another pocket, and mm. we're we're about pockets. So it was just more function. Um, yeah, right. Uh,
0: and so you know that having that type of focus, how has that perfected the product that you you do excel in? Like that you said, you want to get better at. It seems like you know no matter where brands start, there is that lifestyle brand pool that always kind of leads them to branching out. Um, How has staying focused kind of helped you, one, know your customer, two, just make, you know, really, really great product that you have in, you know, your own vision?
1: You know, I kind of think we are a lifestyle brand. I mean, we sort of think of ourselves as a design company. You know, Monica always says, you know, if you're in fashion, you're out of fashion, so it's better to be designed because good design never goes out of style. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we try to design a breadth of product so that we fit into your lifestyle, mm-hmm. whatever your lifestyle is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, again, you have to evolve with the customer. You have to listen to the customer. But at the end of the day, it has to be about the product. And the product either has to work for you, whatever your lifestyle is, or not. No mm-hmm. matter what the bells and whistles and website and pizzazz is around it, if,
0: if it always comes back to product. If the product doesn't work... It's not going to be successful, right? And I think that those uh, bells and whistles are, are kind of a lot of what brands end up talking about because it's that's where like that brand story fits in. That's where the community fits in. How do you? So it, it's like brands have to be like you know two two brains working working right. together. How do you master the product but also tell that story? Because if it's you have really good product that no one you know that people aren't aren't finding out about or, or you know don't like it seems like today that brand identity almost has to be on the same footing as the product because there's so much competition.
1: Yeah, I mean I think we 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 push we push our brand story somewhat but not massively. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that customers are very curious today, so if they find something they like, they dig deeper than they used to to find out if that company's beliefs are aligned with their own beliefs and you know, are they buying into something that they believe? And I mm-hmm. think for Monica and myself it's worked really well because people well, first of all we're privately held so we make the decisions um we're not being governed by a board of any you know it's us um so people really respond to that i think people also respond um, to the fact that we're women mm-hmm. um so as the brand has gotten bigger the story is getting out and people are, are more interested in it i mean you can push push it out on you know social and do you know we do all, a bit of that um but it's also
0: just customers telling customers hmm uh, To that point around you know, just having full control over the brand, how has that serviced, uh, you know, your your decision-making and your strategy, uh, especially because, you know, we're talking about, you know, DTC in, in 1999 versus today, A lo- you're seeing a lot of consumer brands that have venture capital. And so at the end of the day, there are people that they're answering to. Um, and so, you know, one, how does that help you strategize for the brand? And then how does that Uh, you know, then ladder down to being a customer benefit?
1: We don't have to compromise and we don't have to deliver quarterly profits. We're very profitable. We've been profitable for probably 15 of the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think that that being publicly held versus privately held, publicly held can really inform every every single aspect of the company and in ways the customer has no idea. So if we were privately held, we would have had to switch to cheaper leather. By now, because someone who owns a piece of that company wants a better margin, wants more, wants more quarterly profits. So mm-hmm. we're allowed to really stick to our guns on a level of quality that that we can ensure that it remains unchanged. We can do <clears throat> philanthropy in a way that, you know, we have um, a program called MZ Wallace Gives Back, and and with that program we give all the proceeds. So a lot of times you'll read press about a company doing that and it's, you know, 10% of the proceeds or 20% of the proceeds. We can give it all. And that's because it's our decision. So it allows us to create um, an environment that we feel is reflective of our values. You know, we can have all the crazy stuff we have in our office with staff lunches and outings and we can do all that stuff. And it's really genuine Mm -hmm. because it's our money. So if we want to spend the money on lunch and it's a really nice lunch, like we get to do that. Right.
0: Support for today's episode comes from Sweaty Betty and its Power Leggings, the I-Can-Do-Anything squat-proof leggings that feel just like a second skin. The design team behind these leggings is all female, which means they ensure these leggings fit perfectly and flatter the female form. Plus, all of Sweaty Betty's products are trialed by female staff to ensure they perform to the highest standard. If they don't like it, it doesn't get made. Right now, you can try your first pair of Power Leggings for 20% off when you go to SweatyBetty.com and use the code GLOSSY. Once again, that's SweatyBetty.com and use the code GLOSSY now back to the episode and I think it's it's a rare place to be in because you look at other brands that launched in in a similar uh you know product category like the contemporary luxury that we're talking about uh at around the same time you have you know just brands that are being owned like owned by bigger bigger companies uh tapestry capri now uh and then just that you know almost like it's interesting to look at what's where these you know big American luxury brands are you know twenty thirty years in. So how have you guys sort of stayed on that on that path that you're on now, um, and and you know not given up that compromise, or not <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, and not compromised.
1: Yeah, you know we're patient, and um, you know we when Monica and I started it, it wasn't like okay we got to get our money out in ten years or this thing is done. Like we have really a long view. We didn't we didn't start the company to blow it up and sell it mm-hmm. we could have blown it up and we could have sold it many times over but that's right. not why we're doing it um so you know we've stuck to our guns and and it's it's really patience mm-hmm. because if you can wait and you're making a good product the money comes mm-hmm. believe me it come, you know it's there yeah what are the challenges that come with that um it's really hard to run your own business Awesome. It, it, Tell me. It, it's just always hard. It never it never gets easier. I mean, I remember someone saying, "Well, now that you're really big and successful, like, is it easier?" And it's like, "Are you kidding me?" It never gets easier
0: because I imagine you're never taking that one step back. Like, okay, now, like, this is there's other people with their hands in here. It's, yeah. Also,
1: we're control freaks, so you know, we're in it. Uh-huh. <laughs> we're totally in it. So it, you know, it, it's 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 always hard. Um, but I think one of the things about Monica and myself is that our goals have remained the same. And I think for some partnerships, when success first arrives, partners can go in different directions and mm-hmm. want to do different things. And one wants to cash out, one doesn't. And so we're really aligned in that way. So we have a really, my husband always says, you have such an amazing partnership, but we really have an amazing partnership um, in that we, our vision for the company is exactly the same and it's stayed the same. And it, it's just, it's really solid.
0: Yeah. How do your roles complement each other?
1: Well, we kind of do everything together. So you know we have an office that we've shared. When we went into our bigger, you know, fancier showroom, the builders are like, "Okay, so you'll have your." And then we're like, "No, no, no! It's the same office, and we have a, you know a double door that's never been closed <laughs> since we moved in." So we're really we really do everything together. Um, Monica probably focuses a bit more on the website, um, and I might focus a bit more on wholesale, mm-hmm. but. Sort of the running of the company is is together, um, design is together. You know, it's it's pretty together.
0: So it's not like I feel like the usual setup is one person is all like the design creative, and the other person's like hard business. Yeah, no, it's not that at all. Yeah. I think we're both business, both creative. Interesting. And and you mentioned you know one of the one of the. Um, you know good parts about the company is is that it's led by by women founders how have you like and you know we we, we don't talk about that that much as in terms of like what that means for a business strategy like, or like so i guess it's it's less strategy led but more like how has that helped influence the company culture um you know how have you built your team just like what are the what do you see the strength in that being
1: um i think the strength might be that we're more patient with mistakes that staff will make because they will make mistakes Mm -hmm. i think that the way that we um face risk is probably different than men um certainly as we've built the company it's different because i think you know men would have pulled a heck of a lot more money out than we have and we've really reinvested um a lot of money Mm -hmm. you know i like to think that it's really more about patience and letting people grow and not being
0: you know A ball buster. Right. (laughs) A little bit more allowance then with the staff. And uh, how has that also informed, like, the hiring strategy then? Like, where have you evolved the type of talent you're looking for to fit different needs that come up? Because, you know, now, like you said, you started e-commerce early, but now... It's you know the way that, that companies sell online has, has changed drastically. So over the years, where have you looked for, for new opportunities in the form of the type of talent you're hiring for and then foster that, that company culture from there?
1: You know, everywhere. I think we, we hire blindly. We have more women probably than men at the company, but that's not deliberate mm-hmm. by any means. Um, you know, you cast a wide net and we're always talking to people. You know, we've we've had some of our best hires be for jobs that weren't open, but mm-hmm. we met people and were like, "Okay, you're amazing, and you've got to be a part of our business. Like, you're awesome. We've got to hire you." So you've just got to always look for talent.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's interesting to obviously we're always talking about the intersection between fashion and technology, but you know, having your perspective that you've had since starting the business, do you think that sometimes the conversation is a little bit overblown? Like, like, like it's kind of trying to fit like tech for tech's sake and two into how a fashion business should run like you said it's it's some sounds at least relatively straightforward it's a it's a three stool or (laughs) three-legged stool it's a three-legged stool setup for the distribution you're you're hearing from customers when you put it all that way it sounds pretty simple it doesn't sound like oh like digital you know and and technology has blown up our our business and we have to rethink everything because the customer is so different um it sounds like you've kind of stayed the course and so how do you sort of make, make sense of where how technology is fitting into fashion and, and changing it?
1: You know, I think it's an amazingly exciting time in terms of how technology has completely upended fashion. Mm-hmm. And I, it has. I think technology has flipped fashion on its head in terms of going from a situation where designers kind of dictated to women, this is what you're going to buy and wear, to having women dictating to designers, this is what we want. Right. And technology has enabled that. So if I wanted to request that a designer do something, I'd have to write a letter and two people would see it. Mm -hmm. Now I go on Facebook and everybody sees it. So it's empowered the customer in an incredible way. Um, You know, I think with a lot of the DTC brands, it's an interesting moment because there's sort of this mix where they are DTC VC backed brands that are creating a company and plugging a product in kind of at the back end. Yeah. And I'm, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a different way to do it. And mm-hmm. then there are fashion brands that are that are doing tech or trying to catch up to tech. I think fashion is, has been, you know, really not great at tech. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we're kind of a, I hope, I like to think we're a bit of both mm-hmm. because we really came out of a, a product deficit that we felt was in the marketplace, but we jumped on tech really early. But I do think there's a lot of, you know, dazzle and jazz around DTC and around tech stuff. That you know, you can say, "Look over here," you know, and use a lot of terms, but at the end of the day, it's like, "Did it sell?" Right, and what's your return rate? Because that's the that's the pink elephant in the room that no one's really talking about is with the ter- return rates with with ecom. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: but you know, it it's it is still kind of basic,
1: right? You know,
0: <laughs> not to take the magic out of it, right? Right, uh, and you know, to, on that on that front, when you hear like that, it's almost like there's a new marketing spin on on luxury uh, in that. Like we've heard it a million times, like luxury products without the, the markup. Um, yeah, how do you see, MZ Wilson and, and, and your products fitting into that that dialogue? And do you think that you know it's it's possible to build a true luxury brand when the product is kind of coming in at the back end, as you said?
1: I think it's possible. I think it's possible. Um, you know, our pricing has always been kind of what it is. We have some things that are probably, um, we're not getting a great margin out of if we wholesale them, mm-hmm. but never, we don't let that gap widen too much just because it doesn't make sense for us. Um, but you know, I think ultimately it's up to the customer to decide whether that item is worth that money. Mm-hmm. So whatever spin you put on it, whatever store you create, it might get their attention, but at the end of the day, it comes back to product. So right. for us, we have a really high quality product, that lasts a really long time, that doesn't get marked, you know, it doesn't all of a sudden become $5 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And and that has really resonated. And I think that it's also about integrity and just telling the truth to your customer and being honest with your customer. Because if you think you're smart, the minute you think you're smarter than your customer or you can get over on your customer,
0: you are finished. And do you think that's been the same since the brand has started?
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: How come it feels like we're just talking about it now then? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You mean me personally, or like everyone? It seems like that's like the like to your point. That's kind of what's fashion. A lot of fashion brands seem to be just waking up to. It's like you can't pull the wool over your customers' eyes anymore. They yeah. they have to be at the center of your strategy and dictating you know what you, the product looks like and you know what the story you're telling is right. and how sustainable you are. Um, it seems like there was almost there's almost been a shift to that to that customer centric rather than it being like that ivory fashion tower kind right of talking to them well because look what
1: happened to the ivory tower it's collapsing right so you know if you're not if you don't keep it real you're not going to make it you're mm-hmm. just not going to make it mm-hmm. um, so you know we always go back to the filter of like would we wear it do we like it is this good enough for us so you just have to be you know you have to be disciplined and you know truthful and honest right and
0: so with that it it always you know calls into question you know how customers today define luxury what the true definition is because you're to your point it, it's it sounds like you're saying it's more up to the customer because what they decide to pay for something and whether that's worth it is is now more up to them and uh you know at the same time a lot of luxury is just built on that like sort of desirability like aspirational mm-hmm. uh level of, of fashion and so you know and but I, and I think where where like direct-to-consumer brands came into that conversation was like, you know, you're paying for this like brand tax almost for to buy into this brand's world. Um, what's what's your guys' take on that?
1: You know, I think you can't say you're a luxury without some luxurious elements. You know, there has to be for us, you know, our leather is really expensive. Our craftsmanship and our quality is really good. So we feel really comfortable claiming that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, and I think, aspirational is good as well you know like I think that's great but again you've gotta show it in the product Mm -hmm. and I think you can you also have to um, be really good with customer service because I think across the board people expect it and I think if someone considers themselves a luxury shopper they really expect it they expect a really high level of customer service so Mm -hmm. That has also really changed in the industry. I think that's another thing that has been turned upside down by the internet.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, so how do you fill that need for really good customer service as customer experience and the way people shop has has changed?
1: Um, You know, you just have to be really there. There has to be people. You know, our people are actually, our customer service people are in our office. They're really familiar with the product. The product is next to them at their desks. Um, But you have to be really, really responsive. So, Mm -hmm. you know... Who knew that our customers were going to turn Facebook into a customer service platform, which is kind of effectively what's happened.
0: Do you use, like, Messenger or just comments?
1: Everything. Like, you know, but we have a customer service whole thing, but they like to do it on Facebook. Mm-hmm. So you have to follow their lead. They're leading you where they want to be serviced, mm-hmm. you know. And I think um, you have to it's, – again, it's about listening, and it's also about response time. Mm-hmm. Like, this, you know, people – everybody thinks you're Amazon, so it's like mm-hmm. they order, and then it's like five seconds later. Where's my Where's my package? Right. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. you, that bar is high, especially for smaller companies. Mm-hmm. So um, response time is really, really important. Right. And communication. So it might be that you don't get your package for four days or five days, but I want to. They want contact. Mm-hmm. They want to know. It's you know.
0: It's left our warehouse. It's, you know, they want a touch and feel. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So the people have, like, Amazon standards in terms of, like, how fast they can get something. But if you're not able, like, you're not going to be, like, same-day shipping, one-day shipping. It's just more about that. There's ways you can almost, like, fill the gap of time with just transparency. Yeah, some contact. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And so uh, when you look at, like, investments going forward then, you have, you know, your product strategy. You have your your brand story, um, your distribution. Is that somewhere you think you'll invest next in terms of those like logistics that are becoming table stakes for everyone in the industry because of what Amazon's doing?
1: Yeah, I mean, our logistics are pretty good. We, you know, I mean, the way that we run the company is almost the way you buy a house. So you buy a house with an extra room that you think you don't need. So Monica and I really try to build out and hire ahead. So I think that's another thing that because we're women has helped because I think we're really good troubleshooters. And I think sometimes women are better troubleshooters than men. Mm-hmm. And so we're always like, okay, what's the, next, you know, what's the next problem? What's the next fire? So we really try to get ahead of it and be anticipatory and certainly that in logistics and shipping as well mm-hmm. and how we're going to move product around. Mm-hmm. But you know, when we started e-com in 2004, we were international from the get-go. So, we're already dealing mm. with moving stuff around.
0: So you have a lot of experience under your belt uh, and on the on the e-commerce front. Um, and so, you know when you look at the the landscape, um where do you think that, you know, in, in terms and on the on the point of looking ahead, where do you see customer behavior shifting next? Um do you think that? it's going to be even more direct, uh, more like store-heavy, uh, kind of, you know, to push back to that like idea that people are, are still shopping in stores, that's not going away, um, or, you know, just where the brand needs to be and show up, um, you know, as almost like that competitive, competitive advantage. What are you planning for?
1: You know, <clears throat> for us, brick and mortar is really, really important. Um, our customer really shops in a circular fashion. So we have people that will come into the store that say, I, "I saw it in Bloomingdale's. I wanted to come and see what your selection was. I'm going to go back to Bloomingdale's and order because I have points, mm. or I'm going to go home and order it online, um, or I'm going to take it now." But you know, there's she's just circular. So she's she's touching and feeling, and she's also ordering online, and that so you know, the the sort of tactile feeling of the product gets lost online. And so for us, that's why brick and mortar is so important. And that's why our wholesale partners are so important because people can discover the brand and touch and feel it. And Mm -hmm. that for us, it might not be for everybody, but for us is really, really important. Mm -hmm. So, you know, keeping a retail footprint. um, And, you know, I think you have to just make sure that it's as seamless as possible their shopping experience and their customer service experience, no matter what venue they're finding you in.
0: Right? How do you trace that? Uh, it seems like that's one of the biggest challenges for brands when people are experiencing the brand new. Maybe they saw an Instagram ad, then they went to Bloomingdale's and they shopped online, and then they abandoned the cart, and then they went to the store. Like, what do you? How do you make sense of that customer journey when it's so fragmented?
1: You know, we we reach back out. We'll reach back out. You know, cart abandonment, all of that. Um, but we're not high pressure. In terms of selling, people mm-hmm. we don't we haven't found that we need to be. Um, so I think people like that actually because I think that everybody's so marketed to that if there's a brand that's not a heavy sell, it's a relief mm-hmm. um, because we're super confident. So
0: it's, you know, there's a good balance there. And I think our customers can kind of sense it. Right. Do you think there's so you know, just to wrap up, I think we're almost out of time. But do you think there's going to be like a customer pushback to just like this Instagram brand world, uh, where things are really not tactile, and they are being bombarded and, and followed around the internet? Like, where do you see this? It's almost like a return to like, you know, retail, Like, there's no need to reinvent the wheel. If you have good product, you have store availability and online availability. Like you said, it's kind of straightforward. I think there'll be a
1: rebalancing. I don't think, you know, I mean, I guess in Europe, there are four stores for every person. And in America, there are 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think we're overstored. So there's going to be a rebalancing. I think the internet is all new. It's incredibly exciting. It's like candy in a candy shop. So everybody's fully in. But I think there's going to be a balance. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think people will begin to look at social media and look at Instagram with the educated, skeptical I they look at stores mm-hmm. so they'll be able to do an edit in a different way so the the good stories and the true stories and the real influencers and the real brand ambassadors will will break through and the others will fall by the wayside right because it's amazing yeah. i mean it's it's you know i mean if you think that you know the influencers of today are really
0: yesterday's fashion editors mm-hmm. effectively right. so and customers are just getting smarter and smarter mm-hmm. great well it'll be interesting to see where it all goes thank you so much lucy i really enjoyed it thanks for having me We hope you enjoyed the episode. A special thanks to Gianna Cappadona, the producer of this podcast. As a thank you for listening, we're passing along a limited time introductory offer on a three-month subscription to Glossy Plus. Glossy Plus members access unlimited stories, exclusive research, and more. Join today for just $49. That's $80 off by entering the code intro at checkout at glossy.co slash subscribe. And as always, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Anchor FM and leave us any feedback you have.